Welcome to the Palm Beach North Podcast, brought to you by Jupiter Medical Center. My name is Noel Martinez. I am the president and CEO of the Palm Beach North Chamber of Commerce. And today I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by a true champion of our oceans, Andy DeHart. Andy is the president and CEO of the Loggerhead Marine Life Center, the former vice president at Frost Science in Miami. He's helped build and open over three large public aquarium facilities in the United States and Canada. And this guy's a rock star too, man. He's been on all kinds of TV shows, gets interviewed by national media all the time on being a marine life expert. He was featured in seven Shark Week productions, which Andy, we got to talk about here. We got to talk a little bit about that. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Noel. It's great to be here. So let's talk about Loggerhead Marine Life Center. My Be favorite topic. I know, I bet, I bet. So for those of the people that don't live in Palm Beach North and don't know what Loggerhead Marine Life Center is, what, what do you guys do? Loggerhead Marine Life Center is a very special place. First and foremost, we're a sea turtle rehabilitation hospital. So we take sick and injured, wounded, uh, threatened, endangered sea turtles. We rehabilitate them and we get them back out into the ocean after they've been cared for. But the great thing is we get to do this in the public eye. So this is not what happens behind closed doors in a hospital, the backside of the facility. This is all happening right in front of our guests so that our guests can see it. So in a way, we're also an attraction, but we also feature three other key pillars, and that's research on these threatened and endangered sea turtles, conservation programs, mainly looking at marine debris as well as all the issues that are facing the oceans today. And then lastly, we're an education facility, an education campus where we take kids and kids at heart and teach them about all the issues happening in the ocean, what they can do to help, and hopefully get them really excited about what's happening off of our shores. How, how long has Loggerhead Marine Life Center been around? This is our 40th birthday. Oh, we wow. date all the way back to 1983 with this amazing visionary named Eleanor Fletcher that started our organization as the Juno Beach Children's Museum, actually, back in the day. And it started with a trail, double-wide trailer, some Walmart kiddie pools. <laughs> and uh, she really got excited about what was happening here in North Palm Beach County, and especially the sea turtle activity that happens in North County is bar none. So wh why is that? Let's talk about that, right? Because I don't know if everybody knows that. Why? Or why is Loggerhead Marine Life Center right here in Juneau Beach? So we monitor 10 miles of beach, nine and a half miles. If you actually talk to our research people, they, they're really touch about that half mile. But <laughs> we, we monitor roughly 10 miles of beach uh, in North Palm Beach County up to Tequesta. And in that stretch of beach this year alone, we had 25,000 sea turtle nests. That is the most densely nested area in the world in the Western Hemisphere outside of one place in the Middle East for loggerhead sea turtles. But we also get leatherback sea turtles, which are the most endangered, and green sea turtles that nest on our beaches as well. What's the science behind that? Why? Why do they choose Juno Beach? I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not going to profess to be the expert on why they nest at our beaches, but it likely is something to do with the way the Gulf Stream moves. Obviously, we're the closest point on the Florida coastline to the Gulf Stream. That's a really important part of that reproductive cycle. They come from around the world. They come from the Caribbean up north. They come down to South Florida to do this nesting every year. And they do come back to the same beaches that they were hatched on. So you are fairly new CEO to the organization, right? President and CEO. You've been there now, is it two years? Uh, almost a year and a half. Not oh, quite. Okay. Not quite a year and a half. So how's it going so far? Tell me about it. I love it. I mean, to be honest, I think aside from yours, maybe it's the best Best job in Palm Beach County. I mean, we're right on the beach. You literally go out the back of our campus. There's a street, and then we have Juno Beach. We also manage the Juno Beach Pier, and then we also uh, help operate the retail operation at Manti Lagoon. So this is one of the best jobs I can imagine. 
I'm excited about marine conservation, if you couldn't tell. And a place like Loggerhead Marine Life Center, where we're doing active conservation, active rehabilitation. But what I really love is that cross bleed between having people on our campus, doing that education face to face with the turtles that need our help. So you don't do that by yourself. I'm sure you have a huge, huge team and a huge group of volunteers. So tell me about that. Tell me about your team and your volunteers. It really is. That's the best part of my job is it's not a, it's not a one person show. In fact, I'm probably the least important person there. We've got <laughs> our head of animal care, Dr. Uh, Heather Barron, who's our chief science officer. We have our head of research, Dr. Justin Peralt, our head of education, Hannah Campbell. You know, we've got some amazingly talented people, not to mention Kate Fertalia, who runs our retail operation that does almost 3 million in revenue uh, through our amazing boutique gift store. So to me, it's all about the team. It's all about culture. And we add to that paid staff contingent of about 68 paid staff. 41 of those are full-time, some are part-time. We also add seasonal staff in the summer for summer camps and our nesting activities. And then we have a complement of over 400 volunteers that are part of our staff. And we actually engage them as volunteer staff. They're not just people that come in and go. Uh, we treat them very much as the staff that they are because they're critical to our operation. So all that takes money to do all this stuff, right? To pay for some of these doctors, to, to pay for your staff. How is Loggerhead Marine Life Center funded? That's one of the unique things that, that I love about our organization is that we are almost entirely donation-based. Um, about 44% of our budget comes from donations. 26% of that comes actually from personal and foundation giving. This is not grants. This isn't state-appropriate money. This is uh, people with the kindness of their heart giving to our organization because it's an organization that they believe in. And North Palm Beach County, after spending time in Miami, I can say North Palm Beach County and Palm Beach County in general is such a giving environment. Uh, there are people, even if they're seasonal residents, they really put down roots here in Palm Beach County, which I love because that that didn't really happen a lot uh, in my seven-year tenure, eight-year tenure in Miami, where it really was a more transient environment. What I love about Palm Beach County is that people actually take up roots here, even if it's just a seasonal residence. Um, and then we, as I mentioned, we do about $3 million in revenue in our, our boutique gift store. Um, that makes up about 40, 42% of our operations. And then we fill that gap with everything from state funding, county funding through cultural council, um, and then also through other various grant programs. You have a board of directors like, like every other nonprofit organization. So how do you work with your board of directors? That's been one of the, the, the interesting but fun transitions. I'm used to having one boss uh, my whole work life since I started at 15, and now I've got 20, 22 uh, bosses. Yeah, but, me too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but to me, what's funny is part of my onboarding to, to Loggerhead Marine Life Centers, I actually did an interview with every single board member. Um, some of those were group interviews, um, but every one of those was at least an hour. Um, and I think what really was that great fit was they wanted a fit that was a good fit for their organization that, that was able to come in and, and tackle some complicated problems uh, with how to keep turtles in cap captivity while we're, they're under our care, how to manage these complex aquarium systems. But I think it was also, I think they're, they're, they really went out on a limb to make sure that that was an environment I wanted to be at because truly this is a, a place I want to spend the rest of my career. I've had an exciting career, but this is where I want to end it. So you've had an amazing journey. In, 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 and have done some really, really, really cool stuff, which hopefully we'll dig into that. But every journey has a starting point, right? Yes. So tell me a little bit about what drew you to the world of marine biology. For that, we got to go way, way back. Let's do it, baby. Come on. <laughs> so, let's go way back. So my dad was a, a Navy hard hat diver when he was young. He joined the Navy at 17, wanted to 
out of Nebraska as fast as he could get out of Nebraska. <laughs> he ended up teaching himself how to scuba dive. Uh, he mail ordered his first scuba unit uh, as a kid, as a high school kid, taught himself how to dive. Luckily, the lakes in Nebraska aren't deep enough to get bent. Um, so he taught himself how to dive. Always grew up watching Silent World through Jacques, you know, Jacques Cousteau's Silent World. Um, was mesmerized by that. Um, I think he he really so he joined the Navy to get out of Nebraska. While in the Navy, became a hard hat diver. Um, I think he realized that scrubbing the bottom of decks of ships or scrubbing the bottom of ships was more fun <laughs> than scrubbing the top. So that is that what a hard hat dar- yeah, diver it, does? You know, the big brass helmets, the, the brass shoes. But yeah, a lot of it's just manual labor, cleaning boats, um, which enlistee in the Navy, you do a lot of cleaning. I uh, bet. <laughs> so he, he did the Navy for four years, got out before Vietnam uh, just because of when he went in. And uh, ultimately, his passion was architecture, oddly enough, and urban planning. So uh, that's the the path that he tread, although his passion for the ocean was there. That ultimately went full circle, and he ended up being a working for uh, Coastal Zone Management with NOAA, uh, which NOAA obviously is our big ocean um, entity and ocean research entity. And he was doing uh, charrettes on how to do smart growth in the Florida Keys. And so he took me snorkeling at the age of four and five in the Florida Keys. And I was snorkeling with my dad at the age of five and saw a six-foot Caribbean reef shark. And as you might imagine, at five, that's a bathing suit soiling experience. But to me, it actually wasn't. It was this this amazing difference of the, this was calm. It was, there was no tension. There was no fear. The shark just did its thing. We did our thing. And it, it blew me away. Uh, so I was blown away by just being on a coral reef having that experience at five and four years old. And, and I was quite literally pun intended hooked at the time. And then where, where did that lead to? Where did you end up going to school? So I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, um, outside the gates of the Naval Academy, although there was no connection there. Um, so I think for me, we had one of the best aquariums in the world, uh, that was open in the late seventies, the national aquarium in Baltimore. You know, this was this pinnacle of, of aquarium science, uh, so at the age of 15, one of my high school teachers was a volunteer at the aquarium in Baltimore. And she said, hey, there's this high school program where you do half your time in the summer as a volunteer exhibit guide. And then you do another 20 hours a week in one of our paid departments. So I ended up selling tickets. I wore the puffin costume, uh, you name it. And really, that was my first ability to get involved and I tried my hat in college at doing the research, you know, hardcore research. I did an Earthwatch trip looking at shark behavior in, in the Bahamas. But what I loved about aquariums was this blend of we had people in a building, a captive audience in the aquarium that we could really show people a different side of what they were seeing on the media. You know, back when I started, you know, the thought of sharks was Jaws. And, and that still persists a little bit to today. But, you know, I think seeing a shark face to face through an acrylic panel or seeing uh, these uh, these rare fish from the, the Florida Keys. For someone who'd been in Baltimore or grown up in Baltimore, you don't get exposed to that. So I love that aspect of that science of working with animals every day, but the educational element of that. So let's talk about sharks. We got to get into Shark Week. Okay. Right? As long as we end on turtles. We can uh, we, I promise. Sharks. I promise we'll get to turtles because this is kind of cool. I mean, you were on Shark Week. Yeah, it's like, pretty good. You were on Shark Week, which is pretty cool. Not many people could say that. So talk to me about that. Where did that come from? How did you end up being on Shark Week? So again, I think a lot of this is is just dumb luck, you know, to be perfectly blunt. It's better to be lucky than better good. Better to be lucky than good. <laughs> and in, in the nonprofit world, it's better to receive than give. Yep. 
But, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think for me, I started at the aquarium in Baltimore. I first started college at Eckerd College in St. Pete, Florida, studying marine science. But because I had all this experience, because I got involved as early as I did and knew kind of my path, I was very lucky. I got a call. I took a semester off between junior and senior year of college to hopefully finally pass calculus, which took three times. <laughs> so I took a semester off to take calculus at my local community college. And while I was doing that semester off, this zoo, which one of the best zoos by USA Today uh, reviews, almost year after year, the Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha, Nebraska, which is the last place on earth you'd think of, has one of the best zoos in the entire world. So they gave me a call. Again, my family from Nebraska. I had kind of gone on a tour there once while visiting family during the summer. They gave a call and said, hey, we're looking for a team to start up this new aquarium that we're building at the Henry Dorley Zoo. Would you be interested in it? Of course, both my parents are like, no way. Didn't we left Nebraska, so you don't have to be there. You can't possibly be thinking about going back to Nebraska. But growing up a Cornhusker, uh, you know, at the time, there were not many aquariums that were being newly built. There was the old old guard of aquariums that existed, but this was a chance to do something new, and these opportunities didn't come around along very often. So I went out, was part of that opening of that aquarium. And one of the things that, as I said in college, I did some uh, research in the Bahamas. One of my first experiences at doing that research with Earthwatch in the Bahamas was actually pushing around while we waited for the research team to show up a 12 foot tiger shark, like, like walk, pushing it around, like walking the dog. So a tiger <laughs> shark is one of those sharks that needs to swim to breathe. Okay. Well, we, we needed part of our research team to come cause they were looking at whether tiger sharks see in color or not. So the vet, the vet had to come from the, the lab. And so we had to keep this thing breathing for about 20 minutes. So you don't just set it on the bottom cause it can't do anything. So, our, our person who was managing the program uh, said, someone's got to swim this. And I raised my hand. I was probably about 90 pounds wet. And just you grab it by the dorsal fin, which is the top fin, and the pectoral fin, which is the side fin, and you just swim this thing around. And it was unbelievable. I, you know, I, I was 16 years old at the time. And to have that experience. So fast forward to opening the aquarium in Omaha, we get a chance to be one of the only aquariums in the world to ever try to uh, maintain a tiger shark in an aquarium. So I was able to have a tiger shark there. I wrote, a pa I wrote a couple book chapters on how to keep tiger sharks. I wrote a number of papers about tiger sharks in aquariums. And then, you know, so I kind of built this reputation around working with tiger sharks and had become really good friends with Stuart Cove in the Bahamas. He's an operator, runs a dive, an amazing dive operation in, in uh, Grand Bahama, or no, in Nassau, Bahamas. And he has a shark diving part of his, uh, part of his diving operation. Mm -hmm. And he had been hired by discovery channel to film at a new location called tiger beach. And he said, well, I know this guy that'll help be the science part of that. And my first job on discovery shark week was to be bait for Emma, who is a 16 foot tiger shark. That's still at tiger beach. I rode on a surfboard and they peppered <laughs> me with bait and they wanted to see if Emma would go for me or a fake sea turtle. Wait a second, were you wearing like no, no, no protective, no chain, no nothing? No, but I, <laughs> you know, I'd worked with tiger sharks enough that I mean, they were incredibly intelligent animals. I really believed that I could judge their behavior. Um, so it was yeah, me laying on a surfboard and a fake sea turtle flopping around, and uh, <laughs> so I'm still here. So that led to a good career. Yeah. All right, let's get to turtles. <laughs> let's go back to turtles. Yeah. Um, so. You did a lot of work with non-releasable turtles. Mm -hmm. So turtles that are injured, right? And they're just not strong enough or healthy enough to be released back into the ocean. So 
what, um, tell me about that. Like, what was that like? What are some of the biggest challenges that you had working with those turtles? Yeah, it's, it's actually really exciting because one of the things for us at Logger Marine Life Center, if we do have patients that are able to be rehabilitated but not released, the next step, the only step for them is a long-term uh, permanent stay in an aquarium. Mm -hmm. And we look at accredited AZA aquariums as a partner um, because that is the only way public aquariums are able to have sea turtles because of their protected status is that they take animals that are either blind, um, which they would not be able to hunt and eat on their own. There are other situations like permanent buoyancy issues. So we have a lot of turtles that come in because they've been hit by a boat propeller. It opens up their shell, their carapace. And we're oftentimes able to deal with those uh, buoyancy issues. It might just be an air pocket Dr. Barron, our, our head veterinarian, did an amazing procedure on one of the turtles we released. This turtle had a tear in its lung. She was actually able to pull the air volume out outside the lung, and she took a blood transfusion of her own red blood cells, injected it into that air cavity, and actually created a scab because of the red blood cells scabbed on the outside of the lung tissue, healed that lung tissue enough for this turtle to be released. That's crazy. And that's our goal at Loggerhead every time is to release them back to the yeah. back into the ocean. But there are a few turtles, not since I've been there, but there have been turtles from Loggerhead and other turtle rehab facilities that that can't be released. So those ultimately ended up in end up in the public aquarium uh world and they they play a huge role as ambassadors for their species. So you um have have worked and helped build and open um, some major public aquariums. And I talked about earlier in the United States, you've done it in Canada, which is pretty cool. Tell me about those projects and how were they different from each other? Well, again, the first one was that one in Omaha, Nebraska. Yep. Mm -hmm. I was 20, shoot, I was like 22 years old. You know, that was, that was fairly easy. I didn't have any, I was no decision maker. You had no responsibility. You, you no just did what you're told. Do what I'm told, work my 90 hours a week, go home to my little apartment, sleep and rinse and repeat. Um, so that one, I think that got me jaded on, you know, what that was like, but it, it's, it's brutal. It's um, because there's a timeline construction happens and construction can be a year and a half, three years, four years on some of these projects. The last team to get the building is always the animal team. Mm -hmm. There are certain elements of opening an aquarium that you can't rush. You can't rush cycling the aquarium. So if you've ever had a home aquarium, you have that bacteria that helps with uh, controlling ammonia, nitrate, nitrate. That just happens on a much bigger scale in a public aquarium. So that's about a 90 day process that no matter what you do, you can bump the temperature up a little bit, but see, people don't think about those things. No, like and normal people like me don't, not the, normal, but non-scientific people don't think about especially the bean counters that are like, Hey, every day we're closed. We're losing money. But yep. it's like, sorry, that that's what it's going to take. The other thing you can't rush is animal quarantine. So animals come out of, uh, you know, come to the aquarium. They need to be prophylactically treated for parasites, bacteria, things. That's about a, 45 day process. So that's the most challenging part. So ultimately that timeline gets condensed and on every aquarium opening I've done, it's been 80 to hundred hour weeks, not, not biweekly, but that's, that's a one week time check or paycheck is 80 to 90 hundred hours just because there's so much to do at that end. But all of that, it's exhausting. But that day when you're at your worst, you've done like 20 hour day, the next morning you come in, you know, the, you cut the ribbon with a giant pair of scissors and you get to see kids and adults encounter something for the very first time in a place like Nebraska. That is so powerful because, I mean, they're, they're used to corn. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're, and now they're seeing a shark blaze through a huge exhibit. The other aquarium, the, you know, the other one of the other aquariums I did was Ripley's Aquarium of Canada in Toronto. 
again, a lot of people in Toronto have never experienced sharks, uh, coral reef fish. It's, I mean, it's amazing getting to, to have those visitors come through at that 11th hour and, and see you all the work that you've done. And then the most recent one that I did was the, the aquarium at Philip and Patricia Frost Museum of Science in Miami. So they were all a little different. They all had, uh, you know, it's a labor Think about of those love. markets, right? Miami, Nebraska, Canada. I mean, those are three very, very different. <laughs> very, the marketing was very different for each one of those, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about your current role, mm -hmm. right? You've got a, a tons of experience. Like, so tell me about how your past experience has prepared you for your, it's not so new anymore, but <laughs> your role, your current role. Well, I think a lot of it for me has been, and I think, you know, hopefully I think one of the reasons why the board was, was interested is, you know, for me, it's all about putting animal care first. That has to be your number one priority. If you're an animal serving organization, animal care has to be your number one priority. And whether that's the filtration system, whether that's the source of the, your water supply, whether that's how you handle uh, emergency situations, you know, we, luckily, knock on wood, we didn't have many hurricane scares this year. But last year, you know, myself and the senior leadership team were the ones that were doing the hurricane ride out for the two hurricane scares that we had. And that, I think that is it's setting that culture from the very top to say we're an animal serving organization. We're going to do what's right by the animal each and every time. And in a rehabilitation setting, that, that can be hard. It's life and death decisions every day, but you have to lead with what's right for the animal. What is your goal? What is Andy's goal with <laughs> Loggerhead Marine Life Center? And, and you know, what is your vision for the future? For me, it's, it's, it really isn't my goal. We have an amazing team, and we've adopted a, a, a mantra that we stole from Force Blue, which is a military organization. It's one team, one fight. And it is. It's, it's not a... It's not a I'm a vision, you know, it's not my vision. It really is. It's a collective vision of, I think we have this amazing 40 year legacy of, of what's been established at Loggerhead Marine Life Center, the role that it plays not only in our environment, environmentally speaking, but in our community of, of Palm Beach County. I think we want to grow that. I think we've, we're doing the best job that we possibly can with, with the sea turtle rehabilitation. I want to be a bit more aggressive with how do we handle our conservation programs, maybe grow continue with, but grow outside of our marine debris into maybe habitat restoration partnerships. It's probably not something we're going to drive the bus on, but there's so much great habitat restoration work happening on dunes, seagrasses, coral reefs, water quality. Those are the things that we're talking about in our strategic blueprint moving forward. Um, and then for me, at the end of the day, it's really about education. How do we get kids, the next generation, wowed about marine life? You know, not everybody gets to snorkel at four with their dad. So it's how do we get kids from underserved communities in particular? How do we get them exposed? And one of the best things, the, probably the primary reason I'm at Loggerhead Marine Life Center is because we are a donation-based facility. We don't charge admission to come in the door. We hope that people donate generously at the front door if they're able. But really my goal is that any kid, no matter where they came from, no matter what their background, they're able to get face-to-face -face with this awesome thing that's been around for 400 million years, uh, a loggerhead sea turtle or a green sea turtle or a hatchling. I mean, there's nothing cuter than a hatchling. So whatever it is, maybe it might not even be that. Maybe we have jellies in a, a jelly exhibit. We have seahorses. We have Caribbean reef fishes. Maybe it's not the turtles that, that spark someone's imagination or their curiosity, but that's what I really want for the growth of loggerhead. More kids, more adults. If, if you haven't been to Loggerhead, my goodness, you have to go check it out. It's absolutely gorgeous. It is one of our gems here in Palm Beach North. And 
Anytime anybody comes from outside of town, the first place I take them is there because it is so stinking cool and it's special. It what other community has that? And, and we have that. It's part of our fabric. It's part of who we are. So <clears throat> I'm a huge fan. You know that. I, I, do. I, I love Loggerheads. So let's talk a little bit about your leadership style. I've been fortunate enough to get to know you a little bit over the last year and a half, both professionally and yep. we spent some time outside <laughs> of work too. And, and I think you're a great dude and and you are someone that uh, I love to work with because we do get to work together on some stuff. What is your leadership style and how do you think that's going to contribute to the su success of what you guys are doing at Loggerhead? For me, uh, it, culture is everything. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that's, that I've known throughout my career, after having worked at so many places, large, small, I was on the, the board of uh, trustees for the Reef Environmental Education Foundation and the Keys um, so I've seen things from the board side and I've seen things from the staff side and I've realized that you can have the best place in the world to work. It might be on the beach. It might be in the keys. You might have the best staff from a technical standpoint, but if you don't have the culture, nobody wants to work there. And to me, this was an opportunity to take an organization that had an amazing legacy, had amazing staff and really do what I felt like what I was strong at was that I was creating culture and helping culture. Again, it's not, not necessarily my vision, but creating that team, hiring that team, re retaining that team of staff that were super talented, really getting under, under common goals and common ideology. Well, I'm a huge proponent of Patrick Lencioni. He, my favorite management book is called Five uh, Dysfunctions of Team. And it's all about um, vulnerability-based trust, accountability, keeping each other open and honest, that you can have what I call fierce dialogue without having harsh dialogue. You can just talk it out. Just say what needs to be said, leave it on the table, work towards directive. You don't need consensus, but you do need to understand the difference between how you're going to come up with decisions. Is it consensus? Is it majority? Is it just, Hey, informative. Um, so I think to me, I saw this as a great opportunity to take an, a, a, an organization that has such a great pedigree and such a great history and hopefully help a little bit on the culture side of things. And as I said, I want to I want to spend my uh, my career there, and I want to be surrounded with people that I love working with. I want to be challenged. I want to find that next person that's going to take my job when I'm finally ready to give up the the baton, um, you know. But the, to me, that's the exciting part. I want to be challenged at work. I've but I've done a lot of animal stuff, but I'm learning every day. I'm at Loggerhead from our head of research, from our head veterinarian, from our chief operating officer who worked with me at Frost. You know, I'm still learning, and I think. As long as you have that open attitude and but again, you have to be excited. I think if you're going to be in the nonprofit space, you have to be excited about what you do. And I absolutely love what we do. Yeah. I love that answer, Andy. That's a great answer. So conservation and education are absolutely critical in your line of work, right? How do you balance the entertainment and educational aspect of aquariums while ensuring that the animals are, are going to be kept? I mean, they're, you know, they're going to be kept right. You're going to be doing the right thing with the animals. How do you do that? I think it is, it's, it's setting that tone that, that animal care comes first. You know, I think lead with that and the rest will follow. And you've seen organizations that have done that well. You've seen the organizations that haven't done that, yeah. that well. And I've been in the hard place of, you know, your signature animal um, reaches the end of its life. Zoos and aquariums face this every day and it's not due to negligence. And in fact, the IUCN um, actually came out very recently in the last two months to say, how important the role of zoos, aquariums, and botanical gardens have been in the conservation of species. That without 
zoos, aquariums, and botanical gardens, many of the species on our planet would disappear. And the reason for that is because of these rehabilitation programs that many of these facilities run, or and also the, and the, the, the species breeding programs. Just this last summer, we all saw Florida's coral reef took a beating. High temperatures, and what happened there was a lot of the most uh, imperiled corals were removed and brought to inland aquarium facilities to be housed, to be held until this heat wave goes away. People don't know these things. They don't, <laughs> right? And to me, it's to me that's what's frustrating. It's the same. <clears throat> I stand on the same soapbox, and the people that love it already love it. That's why we are working on these collaborations with the, an entity like Force Blue. So Force Blue is a group of veterans. They're all, and these aren't just everyday veterans. These are SEALs, Air Force PJs, Green Berets, Delta Force, Marine Recon. These are the best of the best in the military. And they're recruited out once they retire. Many of these guys have done dozens of deployments overseas. They come back with a lot of baggage, a lot of, you know, horror, horrific things that they've seen. This organization gets them involved in marine conservations. So the first time I went diving with one of these Navy SEALs, he had been, he had way more, obviously, way more. I've got a lot of dive hours. He has way more dive hours than I do. But he was in black water looking at a compass. He hadn't seen a coral reef. He hadn't seen fish. He'd never seen a shark. So, and it, that experience with him was amazing because he's now jazzed. So when he gets on his soapbox and talks about the importance of Florida's coral reef as a former Navy SEAL sniper, that's a very different audience that he gets to talk to. So one of the things I love about our opportunity here in Palm Beach County is collaboration. I want to look at more collaboration. We've got so many amazing animal facilities in Palm Beach County between bush wildlife. You know, you've got Palm Beach Zoo, an amazing place. Yeah. Cox Science Center is building this amazing aquarium. Mm -hmm. How do we all work together with some shared goals? And we've already started some of those conversations, but I think that's what this county has to offer. Yeah, good, good. So you've been doing this for a long time. How many years have you been doing this? Well, I started at 15, so almost 30. My first, my first full-time, first full-time job in an aquarium was 28 years ago. All right. 28. So you've been doing this for 28 years. How has marine conversation, conservation changed over those almost 30 years? <clears throat> well, I think early on it was awareness. It was, Hey, look at a shark. It's not as dangerous as you see on TV. Hey, you know, look at coral reefs, look at rainforests. You should care about them. Um, we're in a very different game and, and our world is heating up. Our oceans are acidifying. Uh, we have continued development. We have problems with water quality. We have problems with runoff. And each one of these things has a backyard assistance. So I think that the change has been, we've gone from, hey, it's an awareness campaign to, hey, we're at DEFCON 6, and we need to do something. We need to act now. And I think places like Loggerhead Marine Life Center, which I'm excited about, uh, can really help with what are those one or two steps you can do in your own life, in your own backyard that will help with the global, global issues happening. Cause I think this is so overwhelming to so many people. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. You don't have to give up everything. You don't have to like sell your car, ride a bike and do, and use no plastic bags. But I think the, 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 really the thing I love to stress is one little thing helps pick one thing. If once you perfect that, do one more thing whether it be no meat on Wednesday or whether it be. I've tried that, man. It's yeah, hard. No, it's hard. I'm a carnivore. <laughs> it's so, hard. It's hard. You know, or it might be, you know, bringing reusable grocery bags. Mm -hmm. I mean, just take the one thing, commit to the one thing. And, and I think we can make a big difference. So you, uh, you know, you're, you're considered an expert in your, in your field, right? Um, you know, we're talking a lot about turtles. We've talked a lot about sharks. 
Um, you've done tons of media interviews. You've been on Shark Week. Like, what's your approach when you have those opportunities to spread awareness on marine conservation? I think it's what's been interesting. I think probably the best thing is as fun as it was to have a business card that said Shark Advisor for Discovery Channel. What I loved about my time, my seven years at Discovery was I learned very quickly that if you're given a window, put caution to the wind and say what needs to be said real quickly in a, in a, just a digestible little nugget of truth. So most people, you know, if you're not familiar with the TV media industry, if you work for a, a network, network X, and you get invited by network Y to come talk on their talk show, that never happens, right? It's a, it's an insular thing, but shark week is this thing that's bigger than any network. And so big that national geographic obviously is trying to steal shark week, you know, they've got their own shark month. So it was really amazing that I could be invited as a shark, you know, conservationist biologist to go talk on the NBC today, you know, NBC news. I could be asked to talk on Wolf Blitzer. I could, you know, be talked, I could give a talk on Fox news, but they would always try to turn that to, well, let's talk about attacks. Let's talk about the blood and gore. And I would immediately get that one window to say, well, Here's the important thing, you know, 11,000 sharks are killed every hour, every day in bycatch and targeted fishing. And it just, it taught me how to use those opportunities to get out what I needed to say. And then we can have the conversation about shark bites, not attacks. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk yep. about you. So what do you like to do when you're not working? And I know it sounds like you work a ton. I know you work a ton of hours, but what do you do when you're not working? I'm, I'm, I love being a dad. I'm a dad to a 16 year old daughter and a 13 year old son. So, what are they like? Uh, my daughter's an equestrian. So she is a competitive hunter jumper. So I help her. She has a, a retired uh, horse. So I help her at the barn some. Uh, and then my son is an ice hockey player. I grew up playing ice hockey. So we do father son hockey uh, when I can. And, and it's, uh, you know, it, to me, that's, that's one of the best things is, is being a dad. I'm an outdoors person, kayaking, camping, figured, <laughs> skiing, snowboarding. You know, if it involves adrenaline and outdoors, I'm I'm sign me up. You've been known to go to a few concerts here and yeah. there too. Do you like music at all? I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge music fan. Obviously, you know, Tortuga Music Festival is an amazing thing. We've been uh, part of the Conservation Village at Tortuga Music Festival for for many many years. Um, our big annual event is called Turtle Fest. Yeah, let's talk about that. that. Yeah, we do yeah, that every on. year. That's coming up in February this year. Um, we usually do that to kick off turtle nesting season, which is begins March 1st and goes through Halloween. Uh, but Turtle Fest is our big event uh, at Loggerhead Marine Life Center in the parking lot. And one of the things that we're, we're really trying to do better this year is really push having more kids' activities in the morning, maybe kind of shift the crowd a little later into more of an adult crowd. And one of the things for me is, is uh, bringing in live music. Um, and we've always had a live music component, but really upping – uh, the notch there. And I think we've got a Nashville recording artist. I don't want to give away too much, but I think we've got a Nashville art recording artist that's at the beginning of his career uh, that might have a connection to the veteran community, which we've been working really closely with Force Blue uh, on their ocean conservation school. So a lot of this is coming together and hopefully we'll be, we'll be telling a lot of good stories at, at Turtle Fest. Yeah, I'm excited about that. You and I were talking a little bit about it before we started recording and uh, it sounds super exciting. So what about the future? Like, how do you engage or, or inspire the younger generation to get involved in marine conservation? I think it is it is about exposure. And what we see, we have a, a great program with Jupiter High School, you know, the JERFSA 
kids, you know, they, they come volunteer. Yeah. Let's talk about this. So what do they do? So what do you they, get? They, you know, they come, they're interns. They're part of our, our guest engagement team. They're doing feedings. They're helping them with the turtles, but they're really helpful on the education front. So, but I mean, those are, those are kids that have already been exposed. They've been out on boats. They've been, you know, at the beach, they've grown up at the beach. They've seen this. They understand the importance of it. They've been, you know, hopefully fishing at Juno beach pier you know, those, they've, they've been integrated. These kids grew up in the water. Yeah, they grew yeah. up in the water like I did. Yeah. What I really want to focus on is how do we get people from underserved communities? It's, you know, we're in a special place. You know, even as close as Miami Beach, the, 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 the amount that it costs to park at the beach, to go to the beach is cost prohibitive. When I was working at Frost Science, we had kids that, were, that lived within two miles of the beach that had never been to the beach. You can't pay to park there. Mm-hmm. We have free parking at our beaches. We have some of the best beaches in the entire world, not just the, the state. So how do we get kids? Is it, you know, how do we get kids to our campus? How do we get them involved in our programs? We have a lot of programs for Title I schools that are subsidized. Um, so, again, how do we get the word out? How do, we, how do we build programs? One of the fundamental flaws in marine conservation is it's not diverse. And it's not diverse because of access. I had this amazing experience growing up. If you're, uh, you know, if you're from a family that you're, you're struggling to put food on the table and you don't have a lot of downtime, you don't have a lot of free time. You're not going to be in the Keys. You're not going to be in the Keys. Snorkeling. You're not going to be in the Bahamas. You're not yeah. going to be in Juno Beach. No. Swimming. Not. You're not going to be boogie boarding. Mm-hmm. So what we really need to do is figure out these programs because the way I started my career, although I had that first experience in high school, as soon as I had that program, I was working in mission selling tickets. That was in Baltimore is one of the roughest cities in the United States right now, which which is hard because that's a place I love dearly. But the kids I grew up with in admission selling tickets came from all over Baltimore. It was a good job. It was stable. They had a a great way to make a living. The minute I transferred into the animal operation where I had to be a a volunteer, the minute I had to be doing a free internship for college credit, all of my friends from the admissions department and the guest services department weren't there. So I think we need to figure out how do we do funded, facilitated, sponsored programs so that we can take these kids. I mean, ultimately, I think our facility, it's not my goal, it's a, it's, it's a goal of Logger Henry Life Center, is to create these programs where we hopefully captivate them when they're young. Elementary school, let's, let's get them jazzed, let's get them, get them hooked. Middle school, there's a program, maybe they're dabbling into the STEM science part of it. High school, maybe by high school, we've got some positions like the guest services that they're under 18, they can't be hands-on with animals just yet. Maybe we have a, a cadre of folks that augment our volunteer corps that are, are decent paying jobs that are these great experiences. Maybe we partner with local Votech schools so that they're helping fix our ATVs. We have a fleet of ATVs that in two years would have done enough miles to circumnavigate the globe. They need a lot of r and I bet. So, you know, how do we partner with these schools that have these great programs that get these kids exposed to the beach get these kids exposed to animals, to wildlife. And then hopefully by the time there is a chance to go to college, maybe we have scholarship funds that number one, maybe help with environmental science programs. But if they've got the scholarship to go to college, that we certainly need programs that are stipended, funded stipended internships for folks that cannot afford to do a volunteer opportunity. What about, well, so what kind of advice would you give some young kid or young adult that wants to be Andy one day, what kind of advice would you give them? Uh, professional uh, advice, professional <laughs> advice, not personal. That's good. Personal might not be as good. Um, so the, uh, 
I mean, really the advice to me, I was not a stellar student. I wasn't. And I heard my whole career, you're not, marine science is one of the comp most competitive jobs you can ever get into. I mean, they joke about it on Seinfeld, right? Like that, that you, this person wants to be a whale biologist, right? So it still is very competitive. It's not a job that you're going to make a ton of money in. You know, it, it is a, it's a, it's a nonprofit. It's a passion job. But if you're interested in pursuing that passion job, for me, I was not a banner student. I was a, an average student. But I got told over and over again, you're not going to make it. This field's too competitive. So what I did, I knew I didn't have the grades. I started working at 15. I sold tickets. I put on the puffin suit. You know, I, I cut bait. I took the dirty jobs. I took the aquarium opening in Nebraska because nobody else was going to move to Nebraska if they like living on the coast. So I think it's getting involved. I, you know, I've opened two aquariums in the last 10 years. I've seen a million resumes. The resumes that stand out are the resumes where kids have applied themselves in the area where they have passion. They, ha You know, yes, there's no way you can't make more money as a barista than you can as a marine biologist, right? I mean, our animals eat better than all the staff. But, you know, if, if I look at a resume and I see barista, but then they're also a volunteer at Loggerhead Marine Life Center or they're a volunteer at Bush Wildlife, they've applied themselves. They're getting involved. They're jumping in two feet. And that's why I think we really need these stipended programs for the, there are kids that want to do this, that need that access to say, I want to work at Loggerhead Marine Life Center, but I can't because my, my family's financial situation doesn't allow for that. So that's where I really want to push the needle. But to anybody listening, get involved, do it early, do it consistently. The one, the one internship and then four times that, you know, I mean, try, at least mix it up. We know that some folks need to make, you know, money in the summer between school, but get involved. So um, you mentioned get involved. Mm -hmm. How does someone get involved with Loggerhead Marine Life Center? Great question. Our website, marinelife.org, uh, is a great place. We have a whole section on internships, volunteer work. Um, we, as I mentioned, have over 400 dedicated volunteer staff and uh, they traditionally do a four-hour shift once every other week. But we have other opportunities for kids in high school. We have certainly tons of internship opportunities for uh, folks in college. So we got to wrap things up because I could be here all day with you. I mean, all we need is a couple beers and yep. we, we would be here all day, right? Um, so is there anything that you want the public to know about Loggerhead Marine Life Center before we go? First and foremost... I know Loggerhead Marine Life Center has been around an amazing 40 years. If you haven't been back since our campus expansion in 2022, I implore you to come visit. We are a much different campus than we've ever been. We have 26 sea turtle rescue and rehabilitation turtle hospital tanks. We have uh, three amazing outdoor aquarium habitats. We have some indoor aquarium habitats. Our education programs are bar none. And really a lot of hands-on learning and education that's happening. We're also an amazing event rental space. If you're thinking about hosting an event, I encourage you to come by, meet with our events team. We've got- It's our, beautiful. Yeah. It's sorry, beautiful there. Sorry, Breakers. We've got a great view. <laughs> They've got an unbelievable view. It's gorgeous. I've it been is. to tons of multiple events there. The Chamber has hosted events Absolutely. there. It is gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. We've got an amazing sky deck. We've got an amazing <clears throat> internal event space. So I think one of the cool things about our location is it's a sustainable event space. We only work with- uh, two sustainability um, partners in terms of kind of our concessioning. And it's all, you know, no plastics, no straws, no plastic cutlery, bamboo or recyclable or reusable. 
Um, so it's a way to actually have an event, but every event that's held at Loggerhead Marine Life Center as a nonprofit that goes back into helping sea turtles, helping with edging ocean conservation. It's not, it's not going into something else. All right, last question, and then we're going to get out of here. Um, I want, we're going to kind of shift it back to you, and it's kind of a deep question. I ask this to everybody, okay. right? What do you want your legacy to be? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I'm at the period of my career. It's like, okay, I've done a lot. But you're not done yet. I mean, no, you got, you got play. Not. you're not done yet. <laughs> no, hopefully not. You're not. You know, I think ultimately what I hope people say is that, you know, that I made a difference in the environmental space. If I can, you know, and I've, I've mentored a lot of people that are now directors of animal care, curators of animal care, you know, to me, you know, it's weird. I, in my time with Discovery, I helped write a book and I, I still get, I'm the front cover of the book. I write the abstract and I still get kids that find me that say, hey, I'm, I found you through this book. I love sharks too. You know, being able to do mentorship opportunities through those. I mean, I've done a student in Texas. And they did a whole thing. And to me, it's if I've moved the needle on 100 people on where they're at in conservation, if I've put 100 people in my lifetime uh, in the conservation world, I've done a great job. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Well, Andy, I am so happy you're at Loggerhead, man. You are, like I said earlier, such a great dude. You're doing some great stuff. I think we're very lucky to have you in our community. Um, you're part of us, you know, and, and you've done a great job since you've come on board. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for your support of the chamber, everything else that you do. I want to thank you all listening to us back at home. Thank you so much for tuning in. Of course, thank you to our friends at Jupiter Medical Center for making this happen. We couldn't do it without you. We truly appreciate um, your time for joining us today. Please make sure to like, follow, share it. Tell everybody about how great this show is. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you so much. <laughs>